everyone. Uh, today's reading is from Genesis 1 on page 1. So pretty easy to find. Why don't you grab your Bibles and just follow me as I read. It's a pretty long section, so it um, be good to give you, get, if you get your Bibles up. And very easy to find, as I said. So Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that and that moves about in it according to their kinds and to and every winged bird according to its kind and god saw that it was good god blessed them and said be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and god said let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, 
over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his, own, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the, over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. There ends our reading. Uh, thanks, Hein. And uh, if you could have your Bibles, or keep them open at Genesis 1, page 1. That's easy, isn't it? And good. Let me pray, and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for page 1, Genesis 1, what it says about your work, what it says about our work, what it says about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to really take it to heart so that we might reflect him and love him more fully. Amen. Well, uh, thank God it's Monday. That's a phrase you don't hear every day, by definition really, Um, but not very often. And uh, maybe if you've had one of those weekends where you had to move house or like clean out your house or you had relatives all through your house... Maybe you're happy just to get to Monday, but week in, week out, I suspect you don't wake up on Monday jumping out of bed, can't wait for the working week to begin. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, Some of us who might be retired, we actually battle to remember which day is which because they all kind of blur into one another. But chances are it's because the weekends are so enjoyable and the working week is pressured and monotonous or just busy. I reckon... Probably the reason why we don't wake up thanking God for Monday is that typically we don't think he's got all that much to do with Monday or Tuesday or any part of the working week or any part of our working life. Even if we wouldn't say this out loud, we would probably think that he's interested in our Sundays, not so much our Mondays. Now, I remember chatting to a friend of mine. He is a farmer. He lives out in Tottenham, which is seven hours west of Sydney. It has the distinguishing, distinguishing feature of being the dead centre of New South Wales, which means it's in the middle of nowhere. And he runs kind of cattle and some crops. And if you think that your job is hard, then uh, imagine just breaking your back for six months, having hundreds of thousands of dollars just invested in seed and fertiliser and have it all wiped away because it rained too much or not enough or rained at the wrong time. Like, that's a hard job. And we were chatting about just Christian stuff one day, and I just clearly remember him saying, well, it's not like you even think about that stuff 95% of the time. He had a very thoughtful Christian guy who's basically doing the same job as Adam in the Garden of Eden, and God and his faith just didn't intersect with his work at all. Now, it's not his fault, it's my fault. Uh, I mean, Bible teachers, they're the ones that are supposed to help people see how faith intersects with every part of life. And I let him down, and my colleagues let him down. And we may have let you down as well, so I apologize for that and for any impression any of us might have given that God only really cares about Sundays and not about the rest of the week. 
But I am really glad that we've got a chance this term to make some regress. Not that we'll be able to say everything about everything and maybe next year we'll need to do a series that's called Thank God It's Tuesday or something like that. But glad to make a start. And look, uh, some of you, as we're starting, might be thinking, well, this is a waste of five weeks for me. I've finished my working life or I've stepped out of my working life. Maybe I'm yet to enter my working life or I don't get paid for the work that I do. And I appreciate that there's people in all of those uh, scenarios, but you don't get out of this because we're not just talking about paid work here. Some of the most valuable work that is done in our society is not paid work at all. Amongst our 8 o'clock congregation um, this morning, some of them are doing the most challenging work of their entire lives, even though they finished their vocational careers perhaps two decades ago. So we're not going to define work really narrowly, as our society does, and say only the paid stuff counts, and basically the higher the pay, the more valuable the work. We might as well define work as broadly as possible to include anything that you put effort into that somehow meets needs, honours God's, and promotes flourishing in this world. I mean, I think we could even go more simple than that. And though I'm sure this is not perfect, we could just say work is the stuff that God has put before you to do. Whether you're 15, 25, 45, 85, you have work. But you probably don't wake up on Monday thanking God for work. And that's because you may not think he's got much to do with it. And that's not true, but to figure out what God wants from our work, we don't actually start with our work we start with his work. So Genesis chapter 1. And the first thing we see there is that God works. He works. He doesn't just sit around on some kind of heavenly sofa watching reality TV, eating grapes or M&Ms. He works sustaining the created order. I mean, he's holding everything together. He's bringing people under the conviction of their sin and their great need to trust in his magnificent son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when it comes to God working, really the obvious place to start is page one, where we see God at work in the creation of the world. And it's surprising in some ways that the very first thing we read in our Bibles is the working week of God. He works for six days, however you want to read that, and then on the seventh he rests. Now I um, personally don't see Genesis 1 as a 21st century scientific textbook trying to answer 21st century scientific questions. But I don't think we're meant to dismiss it as just ancient myth or poetry either. Whatever you think about it, however you think about it, it's rich in theological truth. So what theological truths does it unlock about the way God works? Well, have a look, verse 1. You'll see there that work happens at the initiative of God... And then in verse 2, you see that he takes what was formless and kind of empty and watery chaos and he shapes it into something that has got order and that has life. You'll see from verse 2 there that the Spirit of God is there in the very beginning waiting to kind of carry out the verbal instruction of God because the Word of God and the Spirit of God always work together. And something quite extraordinary happens as God creates the world. In the first three days, he he creates environments. He forms environments. So day one, he creates day and night. And then 
water and sky on the second day, and then land, dry land vegetation on the third day. And then in the second set of three days, really the back half of the working week, if you like, he fills each of those environments in a corresponding and fitting way. Have you noticed this? Night and day he fills with sun and the moon, day four, day one. Next, he fills the waters and the skies that he made on day two with birds and fish, day five. And then finally, he fills the dry land that he made on day three with animals of every kind on day six, including humans at the very end. You see, we are meant to see a pattern here. And we're meant to see that the, the heart of the creative work of God is the forming of all kinds of raw materials into environments and then filling those environments appropriately. He brings order and life. So that as he finishes each day or each part of his work, he looks at what he's done and he can say, well, that's good. Not being a moral kind of comment, not saying, well, that's without sin, but saying, look, that's, that's good, that's decent work. It, it's fitting, it's beautiful That's a job well done, if I may say so myself. It does precisely what it ought to do. And then, of course, he rests, which we'll look at in two weeks' time. Now, friends, the reason why it's worth spending a fair bit of time looking closely at the work of God in Genesis 1 is because we take our cue for work from him. And you can see that in verses 26 to 28 in Genesis 1. Massively, massively important verses for understanding humanity, but our work in particular. So read them along with me in your Bibles. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the uh, wild animals, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, etc., etc. Hugely important verses because they tell us that we are made in God's image and in his image means that we work too. And that's the second thing we see for today. Being made in God's image means that we also work Now, there's lots of ideas about what it means to be made in the image of God. Ultimately, it's Jesus uh, who perfectly bears the image of God. But what did it mean for these first humans? And what might it mean for us? I mean, it can't mean that we look like God because God is spirit. So if we don't look like him, we must be like him in some way. But in what way? Some people have said uh, it means that we are reflective creatures. That means we not only think, but we can think about thinking, which is a lot of thought, isn't it? Uh, Some have said it means that we are creative beings because God was a creative being. Surely it means that we are a great combination of unity and diversity. So our maleness and our femaleness kind of combine into a wonderful, unified humanity that somehow mirrors the diversity and unity of God. You know, you've got God being Father, Son and Spirit, but they all form a united being of God. And 
that unity and that diversity and that possibility for relationship, it's embedded in our design as the human race. But did you notice this? The only kind of explicit thing that is mentioned about being made in the image of God is that we work. Did you notice that? We work on his behalf. <clears throat> Last week, um, Bruce mentioned there's lots of internationals in Manly and there's lots of internationals in our uh, fellowship, which is terrific. And as I understand it, lots of internationals have become naturalised Australians, which is also great. And uh, when you become a naturalised Australian, you have to do a test about Australia. And I'm not sure if there are any questions about Sir Donald Bradman, but there should be. Not because he was like the greatest cricketer who ever lived, but because it's hard to think of a more iconic Australian than the Don. I mean, you have to like cricket. But to be Australian, you have to have an appreciation for this guy. And you see, even his nickname, the Don kind of means he's the king. And if you go to many ovals across Australia, there'll be some kind of memorial to him there because the cricket grounds across this country were his domain or his domain, if you like, his kingdom. And so there's a statue of him outside uh, his home ground in Bowral in the Southern Highlands. And uh, when they redid the Melbourne cricket ground, the first statue they erected was one of Sir Donald Bradman. And probably the most famous one is the statue of him outside the Adelaide Oval. And uh, look, it's not often you get to reference Adelaide in sermons, so we're just going to enjoy this for like a second. Okay, because the Adelaide Oval is where the Don ruled over many summers. And in a sense, this image of Don will always rule the Adelaide Oval, even though he no longer plays there. And being in the image of God means that we humans are like kind of little statues, but living ones, resembling God in, in certain ways and ruling the earth like God would rule it on his behalf. In Genesis chapter 1, being made in the image of God and ruling over creation, it's very tightly connected. Now, when it says rule the created order or subdue the earth, that might actually sound a bit harsh to our modern ears, but it doesn't mean we're meant to just plunder the earth in a single generation and leave it as a waste tip for all future generations. See, you flick over the page and do this with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and you'll see that the first humans were to work the ground and they were to care for it. So it's not pillaging the earth ruthlessly, but nor is it just leaving everything as is. You see, our work of ruling the earth on God's behalf also involves ruling it in his way, which means we take all the raw materials that are there, you know, the cultural ones, the personal ones, the environmental ones, and we cultivate them and we arrange them and we fix them and we form them so that our world is full of life. Now, it's kind of easy to see how you might do that in farming or in gardening. And I reckon it's not too difficult to see how our parents, grandparents, and our educators, our teachers, how they kind of cultivate raw abilities into really useful and beautiful talents in our young people. But you know when business and finance and industry is done well, that's what happens. 
It takes raw materials of all kinds. It allocates them. It, it forms them into goods and services that serve human needs, that promotes a flourishing society. I mean, that's what Katie does. And I'm aware that, and I'm not talking about Katie's work here, I'm aware that the business and finance and industry and all sorts of stuff is not always done perfectly. In fact, it's often not done perfectly. But that's a way to think about our work. Ruling, subduing, caring for our world and its inhabitants in God's ways, on God's behalf, so that life abounds. Now, don't think that I can't hear the snickers in the back half of the audience. I know what you're thinking. You think Scott sounds great, love to live in your world. Try stepping into my shoes at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Why don't you come to my workplace on Wednesday? Well, I might, you know, if you invite me. Aren't we being just a bit idealistic, Scott? I mean, how can my work really involve ruling for God on his behalf in his ways? When I get up on Monday morning, I don't think, thank God, I think work sucks. Like, it sucks the life out of me, it sucks the passion out of me, it just plain sucks. And I realise that it does for everyone, to one degree or another, and we will get to that certainly next week. Uh, please come, though, it's worth coming nevertheless. Um, but before I do, I just want to remind us of what Katie said uh, when we were talking just earlier, that the placement of this overarching job description for the human race in Genesis 1 and 2 falls before Genesis 3. Now, of course it does, you're thinking, Scott, you're an idiot. Of course 1 and 2 comes before 3. But no, I'm actually trying to isolate a significant theological point about our work, and that is that it existed before the fall in Genesis 3, before sin entered our world and streaked everything with pain and displeasure, including our work, which is to say, I know that our work is so often frustrating and stressful, but it's not a punishment for human disobedience. It is a part of God's design for us. And that partly explains why we don't really stop working once we retire or only really start working once we get our, full, our first full-time job. Though, of course, the nature of our work is going to change at those milestones. Our work is not a punishment for our sin. In fact, our work is, is part of our worship of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that. But it has to be, doesn't it? If we're to offer our whole selves to God as living sacrifices, then, of course... Our work counts to him. I mean, every square inch of our being counts to him. Of course it's got to matter. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the idea of work and service and worship, they all overlap so that our work is part of our worship. What we do on the other six days of the week really matters to him because it's part of the way we worship him. Now, the truth is that uh, some of us hope for too much from our work, don't we? We look to our work to give us ultimate uh, meaning and identity and purpose in life. You think about any uh, given social scenario where you're introduced to someone for the first time. Here's the first question, how are you? Here's the only acceptable response, I'm fine, thank you. Even if you're not, you have to say that, don't you? Second question is, what do you do? 
Now, the correct response in our culture is, I am a plumber or a teacher or a domestic goddess or a domestic god. They're pretty rare, aren't they? Um, or a full-time carer. But it's interesting, isn't it? The correct answer is not a I do. It's I am. In other words, we define ourselves according to our work and, and we're really hopeful that will earn us significant dollars and social status and personal fulfilment. And when we do all that, we kind of burden our work with too many hopes and too many expectations. And it's very easy for it to become an idol to us uh, in the way that it was for many people in, in Katie's workplace. Many of us hope for too much from our work, and we'll be talking about that in future weeks. At the same time, though, lots of us hope for way too little from our work, especially if there isn't great monetary reward or social status or personal fulfilment. But God sees our work, whatever we do, as part of our worship of him. Every messy bench top we clean, every article we write, every picture we draw, every piece of advice we draft, every assignment we submit, every deal we make, every meal we make, every tap we fix, every card we write, every client interaction, every class activity, every hospital visitation we make as an opportunity to worship him. Do you think that? By doing it well, by doing it with a glad heart, by being happy that our labour contributes to the needs of others, by knowing that even if no one else sees it, he sees it and it counts to him. Uh, Some people here have asked the question about vocation and whether people are called into particular jobs in the same way that people are apparently called into full-time Christian ministry. And it's a really savvy question because our word vocation actually means to call. You think about it, um, vocal, voice, vocation, it's a clear connection with the idea of calling. I think it's interesting to see how the New Testament talks about calling because I'm not sure it even talks about people being called into full-time Christian ministry. I mean, the Apostle Paul is explicitly called to be an apostle of God to the Gentiles. But most of the time, the New Testament talks about being called to be Christian, being called to faith, being called to be godly in whatever place we find ourselves. Now, I'm sure it is much better to be employed in a place that suits your skills and your passions and your values rather than just trying to find something that pays the most or has the most social status. In other words, if you can find somewhere that really fits who you are, that's a great thing, isn't it? But it seems to me there's an even better question to ask, which is, how do I serve God? How do I serve others? How do I bring order? How do I cultivate goodness? How do I I enhance life for others in the place that I find myself right now? You see, for mums and dads or perhaps grandmothers, grandfathers that are caring for uh, their grandchildren, when your elbows into your ninth nappy of the day, that can be a pretty demoralising experience, can't it? And our first thought is not, boy, God is in this. I mean, you're probably thinking, I think the devil is in this from the smell of it. I'm not even sure God exists when I smell this. And certainly society ascribes very little economic value to that part of your work even if it values other aspects of your work. But there is this little kid, you see, whose life is going to be terrible if you don't do 
that work really well. And there's a God who sees patient and loving service. And so there's something quite significant going on in your soul if, if you can actually see this as an opportunity to both glorify God and serve others as well as developing your own character rather than quite literally getting bogged down in the mess and the monotony of it all. To worship well means we work well, doesn't it? It means the quality of our work counts, whatever we do. I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian mechanic? I think in the first instance it means you fix the car properly the first time. What a great act of service to the family that's relying on that car. What does it mean to be a Christian pilot? makes a big difference if they land the plane, don't you think? You think of the difference it makes if you're an insurance assessor and you pay claims fairly so that you neither wriggle out of responsibilities on technicalities nor take the company and its underwriters and shareholders for a ride with stretched claims. You see, that makes a difference to all parties involved. But it's also an act of worship to God and you can see why God would be pleased with a job well done in each of those cases. After all, he didn't make night and day or the sea and the sky and go, "Mm, that's good enough. That'll do. He looks at it all and says, that's good. It's well made. And so quality counts. You think of the difference it makes if banks work well. Um, They provide capital to families and to businesses so people can have a home, uh, so that goods and services are provided, which in turn provides employment for others. You think of the difference it makes when banks extend loans to people who can't afford to repay them, and then you've got a financial crisis, don't you? You see, it all counts. It all makes a difference to people and to God. And so we've seen that God works, and we've seen that because we're made in his his image, we're to work as well in one form or another. We've further seen that because God... uh, work existed before the entrance of sin there's a fundamental goodness to work that it might even be if we can get our minds around this a part of our worship to him as well as service to others but finally today because of the fall because of sin we cannot carry out our work perfectly and bruce will will say much more about this next week but I, i just don't want to leave us today by overreaching and and creating an impression that if we're all great campers and do our best at work, that we will somehow recapture that Eden-like existence where humanity rules and cares for creation idyllically. The entrance of sin into our world and all the attendant frustration means that our work, like every aspect of our life, our health, our relationships, everything, we will not live up to all that we were designed to be. And of course, we know this in our souls, don't we? You know, the scriptures have an equally realistic appraisal of the situation. Romans chapter 8, it reminds us, for those who need reminding, that our bodies are groaning. We're groaning with broken bodies and broken hearts. And our world is similarly groaning in its bondage to decay. In other words, just as our bodies are breaking down and we're looking forward to resurrected bodies, won't that be a great day? So our whole creation is, being, is looking to be liberated from its decay, decay and to be restored to its former glory under the rule of humanity. But it's only going to be done perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the only one about whom the New Testament says God put everything under him. God placed everything under his feet. He is the one who rules over all things perfectly. And didn't we see glimpses of that in his life, in his earthly life? He brought order to the watery chaos when he stilled the storm. You remember that? He restored sight and abilities and he eased pain and he fixed frailty. And we saw him cultivating faith in little ones. We saw him restoring the eternal fortunes of adulterers and criminals. And because he not only forgave sins but conquered death by his own perfect life and sacrificial death, Jesus is the one who will bring perfect flourishing to bear upon us and upon the created world when he returns. Of course our work counts. How can it not? But it's his work that ultimately fulfills the command of God in Genesis 1 and 2. And so the New Testament says to us, the most important work we can do is to turn and to trust and to follow him. Now, folks, as we finish today, there's a number of things that we ought to do. We ought to praise God for his work. It's breathtaking, isn't it? But uh, it's also the, the thing that gives us life and breath. And we should repent of seeing our work as just a burden or a chore or alternatively looking to our work to provide ultimate meaning and value and purpose in life, which, of course, can only be found in relationship with God, I'd have thought we ought to thank God for the privilege and, and apply ourselves wholeheartedly to the noble responsibility of working for him on his behalf, in his way, in his world, taking the various materials and situations that lie before us and cultivating them so that life abounds. And even knowing that we can never do it perfectly, working in God's world on his behalf, in his ways, we can nevertheless see it as an opportunity for worship so that the quality of our workmanship counts, whatever the work is that lies before us. We want to do the best job we can. We want to value work done well by others, even if our culture doesn't value it. But of course we know that there was one who worked so well for us, whose life typified and whose sacrificial death guaranteed that he would rule over all things in creation, even death itself, so that trusting in him is the very best work that we can do. Friends, we were created to work. And I want to say, thank God, it's Monday, at least tomorrow morning. And please tell me if you wake up tomorrow and can say those words with the work that God has put before you to do. I'm going to finish by praying today and I'm going to do it in a slightly different way. Uh, a few months ago, I had to get dressed up, quite literally in a dress, it was a bit weird, uh, and get ordained in the cathedral in the city where people prayed for me and my work, which is a lovely thing. I did think it was a bit dumb that um, I'm the only one that gets to benefit from that. And so over the next uh, four or five weeks, we want to pray for people in our congregation. I want to pray for you in your work and uh, I want to pray for everyone in the work that lies before them and that's uh, quite difficult to do because there's probably hundreds of different areas of work that we're involved in. So we're going to cast a broad brush. Uh, today we're going to pray for creators and constructors and carers. Okay, And you define it, not me. Creators, constructors and carers. You build something, 
Um, you're, you're an artist. You care for things or people. Today we are praying for you. Next week we're going to pray for advisors, informers and fixers. Uh, coming up we'll pray for industrialists and employers. And I'm sure you'll let me know if we haven't prayed for you yet. And the, the last week we'll work out who else to pray for. So um, we're all going to close our eyes. But if you consider yourself to be a creator, a constructor or a carer, broadly defined, you can be looking after little kids, uh, in the health professions, whatever it is. I'm going to get you to stand up. And you don't need to feel awkward because everyone will have their eyes closed. Pray for you and we'll pray for your work. And then we'll finish by singing together. Let's pray. Moment of quiet. I'd love the constructors, creators and carers to stand up. Heavenly Father God, we want to thank you for working Uh, We further thank you for giving us work to do. Though at times it can be uh, frustrating, tedious, stressful, burdensome, help us to also see it as part of our worship. Particularly for the creators and constructors here, I pray that you would fill them with a sense that there's there's something almost godlike about what they do as they build things and make things. Beautiful things, functional things, things that make life better and easier for others. For the carers, Lord, we thank you for them and thank you for um, all the blessings that they bring to this life. And we are uh, so cognizant of how awful life would be without carers of many kinds in our world. So bless their work, we pray. Help them to care well. Give them immense patience and perseverance and empathy and courage as they care well. And Lord, for all of us in our work, help us to... Uh, reflect your work, but also look to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought all things under his feet by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. Bless us in our work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we are all going to stand now. Finish by uh, singing our final song. It's an opportunity.